0: Our scripture reading today comes from the Old Testament, Deuteronomy, chapter 30, verses 1 through 6. When all these blessings and curses I have set before you, come on you and you take them to heart whenever the Lord your God disperses you among the nations. And when you and your children return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart, and with all your soul, according to everything I command you today, then the Lord your God will will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where he scattered you. Even if you have been banished to the most distant land under the heavens, from there the Lord your God will gather you and bring you back. He will bring you to the land that belonged to your ancestors, and you will take possession of it. He will make you more prosperous and numerous than your ancestors. The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and your hearts of your descendants, so that you may love him with all your heart, with all your soul, and live. This is the word of our Lord.
1: I, I get a, even a little emotional thinking about it. It was January third, nineteen ninety-three. Uh, it's hard to think that that was uh, thirty years ago. Is that right? I'm not good at math. That was thirty years ago, right? Um, but it's it's actually a day that I remember pretty well for being that long ago. For for most people, it, it was an exciting day. For me, uh, it's. It was terrible, and it's been terrible ever since. Because January 3rd, 1993, is the day of the comeback. The day you know, right? If you're a football fan, you already know the comeback. That's just what they call it. That's simply what we call that game, the comeback. I I was one of those odd kids... Uh, raised in Texas, who was both a Cowboys fan and an Oilers fan. Uh, I, was, I was kind of in the middle, so everybody hated me, but, um, but I liked them both. And the Oilers were good that year. Um, Warren Moon was my hero, and he was unstoppable that day. Well, at least for like two and a half quarters, he was unstoppable. The Oilers were playing great. I mean, I was so excited. Um, Bills had been playing terrible. The, it was a twenty-eight to three game at halftime. You, who remembers watching this game? Is anybody? Okay, I. Whew. Yeah, it was twenty-eight to three. I'm like, yes, this is it. And then second half comes in, they score again. It's thirty-five to three in the third quarter. Thirty-five to three. If you know football, that's that's game over. That's done deal, right? Thirty-five to three. But they were playing the Buffalo Bills, and the Bills had been to the last two Super Bowls. And, and they had a good coach, and, and the coach was able to, to settle them down at halftime and, 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 and to start kind of convince them, hey, let's just, we got 30 more minutes. This might be the end of your career, the last 30 minutes of your career. There might be the last 30 minutes of your season. You just don't know. But make this last 30 minutes, 30 minutes that you're proud of. That's all he said, and we can, maybe we can chip back away at this thing and amazingly little by little and then it just happened in an avalanche the next thing you know the game is tied at the end of regulation and those buggers came back and won 41 to 38 in overtime 41 to 38 it's still the largest playoff uh... comeback in history and until there's this purple team up not too far up north uh... until them a couple months ago it was the largest comeback in nfl history um, everyone else in the world was so excited. I was devastated. I mean, I was just a tortured guy at the time. Um, but you probably remember that game. And, and it still is one of the greatest NFL games in history. People love comebacks. People remember comebacks like this. We are starting a series on the book of Nehemiah. And it, it may be a book you're familiar with, but it, it, it is a great book. And and there is so much for us to learn from it. You're going to see in this book a a group of people led by a man named Nehemiah accomplish the unthinkable. A 35-3 kind of unthinkable comeback is coming. And and, and by the time that we're through with this book, I, I think you'll be convinced, if you're not already, that God loves comebacks. God loves comebacks. He is the God of the comeback, in fact, And so I'll ask you this morning, is there a comeback that you're hoping for? Maybe it's in your life, maybe it's in your family, maybe it's in some other area uh, for you. But but we're going to look at this series and and see how God orchestrates comebacks in His people, in His church. Can God lead you in a comeback in your life? Can God lead us as a people into a comeback? Let's, Let's pray with these questions in mind. Father, we thank you for your word that it is unchanging and that your truth, that uh, the glorious things we can know about you haven't changed. Remind us of who you are as we study. Help us to see you in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're going to read the first chapter of Nehemiah this morning. Nehemiah is in about a third of the way through the Bible. It's before Psalms. If you get there, you went too far. Um, it's it's uh, after all the Kings and Chronicles and all of that. So um, we're going to read Nehemiah chapter 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hekaliah. Now, it happened in the month of Kislev. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants." "...confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, "...if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven... From there, I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. So as we start this new series, uh, there's a ton of background that we kind of need to understand to, for this story to make any sense to us and, and to, for us to under, understand why it, 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 this is such an amazing thing, an amazing story. Uh, if you remember, we have discussed, and, and you may be familiar, that Israel split into two kingdoms. There was a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom after the death of Solomon. So you had David and then Solomon, his son, and after that, nobody could figure out what to do, so they split. And so there's a northern northern kingdom that was called Israel and a southern kingdom called Judah, when Jerusalem was in Judah. Uh, Israel is always bad. We've talked about this before. They never follow God ever and and they are destroyed in 722 bc by the assyrians and and they are scattered in into in what uh, people call the dispersion they'll never return uh, in the way that we think of of, of that kingdom they they never return the southern kingdom is judah and and they have a few good kings and and if if you remember the way that we count in bc is like counting backwards so 722 bc Goes all the way backwards to zero. Um, Judah survives until five eighty six BC, so about one hundred and fifty more years, and and um, they're defeated by the Babylonians. Their temple is destroyed in five eighty six. That's that's a date you can always remember as kind of the mo- most important for the Jews. The temple is destroyed, so um, it's it's the most significant event they can imagine. Um, it's the worst news ever. Think of think of nine eleven for Americans, but many many times worse than that. Um, it's just terrible. So, um, in five eighty six the temple's destroyed and Babylon says enough of you guys. We're tired of you. You're all coming to live with us. And so the, the, anybody who survived was was forced to walk all the way back to Babylon, and and they become kind of work servants, if you will. They they are working there. They are living there. But but they're their whole purpose is, is to serve Babylon. And so, so that's what the, the Jews are doing uh, from 586 on. So keep moving backwards a little bit. 539 is an important year in world history. Uh, Babylon was the, the power of the world and they are defeated in 539 by the Persians. So it kind of, Assyrians, Babylonians, Persians is kind of how that works. And the, the Persians are, are kind of weird But they don't really care much about religions that you want to worship. They didn't make you worship their God. They said, look, you guys want to worship your your God? That's fine. Just, okay. And so in 538, so just one more year, they said, if you Jews want to go back and you want to rebuild your little temple and worship your God, that's fine. We don't care. Uh, Go back and do that, whoever wants to. And so that we have the first return of exiles, and then that happens in 538. So hopefully you're kind of sticking with me here. Um. And, and uh, they return to just a deserted wasteland. Jerusalem has become a ghost town and, and just full of rubble. There's really nothing there. But, but they decide they're going to start to work on the temple that year in 538. And it, it, it will, you can read about that story in, in the book of Ezra, which... Ezra and Nehemiah, through the Jewish history, is just one book. We've got it split into two. But Ezra and Nehemiah were only one book throughout history. So, but you can read the story of the temple being rebuilt um, by Zerubbabel. And, and that kind of is an up-and-down story. It takes some, some time. But finally, in 516 B.C., the temple is finished. So 586 to 516, that's how we date the 70 years of exile. So the temple's destroyed, temple's rebuilt in those 70 years. Okay, so, but not everybody returns, not everybody's able to, not everybody wants to. Some people have set up their lives there in Babylon, which is now Persia, and they don't really want to go back with Zerubbabel and Ezra and all that stuff. And so um, they're, they're now living their lives and have just kind of gone on still there in Persia. And, and some of them have good jobs, some of them are, are making a difference Living as godly people in the, in that community, and they 've just decided to stay and Some people were too young to go and we think that's probably the category of of, of our of our hero for the story, which is Nehemiah. He would have been too young at this point uh, to have gone back with the first group of exile, uh, returning exiles so uh, he is working for the king of Persia and and our dating for for our story what we 're going to look at in nehemiah is four forty five b c so so 586 to 40 you've got about what 130 140 years time in there that, that we're talking about that since the, the temple had been destroyed um, it had been rebuilt but it wasn't anything like it had been so they called it Zerubbabel's temple it was kind of a poor imitation uh, it was a workable copy uh, but it wasn't, it wasn't near what Solomon's temple had been but they were still able to use it uh, but that was about it so, so we're in 445 B.C. And I think it helps as we read this story to kind of give ourselves maybe it, look, think in our own context. So we don't have a good equivalent to anything like this, but, but just use your imagination for a minute. So imagine that we lost World War II, which would have been, what, 70 years, 80 years ago now? I can't, I'm doing the math again, 1945. So a long time ago, that's kind of the same time that we're talking about. <laughs> Somebody figure it out and tell me. Is it 78 years? Are we 78 years removed? Is that right? Um, we lose. And the Germans say, you're coming with us. And so we've all been forced to go live in Germany. We've had children. We've had grandchildren during that time. And grandchildren. So that's us, right? The grandchildren are... are, are have known our whole lives in germany, but we've we 've heard about our our homeland and, and hope to go back and some people have gone back to washington d c right and again there 's no perfect example but i 'm just trying to think through what this could look like that had been completely wiped out over seventy years ago and, and they 'd worked on it trying to be uh, rebuilt. The Germans let some people go back and but they 're living in rubble and so you 're living in Germany trying to get on with your life and you hear yeah the, the, there 's some there's some, you know, old patriots that are trying to live there, but it's just terrible. It's just a terrible place. They don't have any honor. They, they're just totally humiliated. They, they're, they don't have homes even. They just live as peasants in the rubble of Washington, D.C. And, you know, they're trying to rebuild the Capitol building, but oh, pfft, it's not working that well. And, um, and, and then you hear something like, you know, the, the White House is even being used as a, a flea market right it uh, 's just a terrible place. nobody wants to go there and how would you feel in that situation? Multiply that that's that 's where Nehemiah is as he 's hearing this news from his brother and so so that 's kind of how we, I think it helps us put put this in our place maybe a little bit so so nehemiah he 's living with the king in Susa, which is you know this kind of fortress city, a beautiful place the Persians have created and um his brother they meet up and he says well tell me tell me about jerusalem tell me about those who have returned and they've been there whatever 65 years or so what's it been like for them and he just says it's terrible they're in a bad spot and there's no wall there's no honor no real future um and he's just devastated just devastated we 're going to talk about that, but so he's in this interesting position he's, he's what they call the cupbearer to the king his job his primary job is uh, to be the taste the, the one who tastes the food of the king to make sure it hasn't been poisoned So kind of a risky job right he would He got to eat and then they would watch him and to make sure he was still okay uh, drink some of the king's wine, and then if that was okay, then okay, he's fine so it was very important that he that he Never looked sick or sad or like something was wrong with him because it would have made everybody nervous. So, but but to to have that job, it wasn't just about tasting food. He, um, he would have been kind of like you know the British idea of like a footman. He was kind of always with the king. Um, he helped out all the time, and so he had to be smart. He had to be handsome. Had to be you know well read. He had to be a good communicator. Uh, a lot of a lot of responsibilities that that this guy had, and so. Uh, he would have had conversation and daily access to the king, so a, pr- a pretty unique position in in, the, in those days. So, uh, if you look back at our at our passage in chapter four, he hears this news. He hears this news from his brother, and he's just devastated, just devastated. And he says that he sits down and he weeps and mourns for days. It says that he fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And so we're, we're calling this uh, series uh, Making a Change or, or what, it, what does it look like that God would lead people through change as we're thinking about that. When, when we started talking about God doing something new in our lives, I, 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 think, it's, I, th- I think it's important that, that we recognize change starts with, with hearing. Change starts with being willing to listen. And, and I would say Caring, right? Change starts with caring, and, and Nehemiah cares. He cares, right? Uh, he cares enough to ask his brother, hey, what's, what's going on? How, how are things in Jerusalem? Nehemiah didn't have to care. He, he could have focused on himself. He could have worried about his own situation, which was better than normal, better than an average situation for people. You know, he got to work with the king. I, I got important things to, to do. He didn't have to care. And, and, I, and I'm not going to gripe too much, but, but how many things do we care about anymore? Most of us are stuck in our own problems. We're distracted by our own little rectangles so that we don't have to see what else is going on around us. We're, we're too busy, whatever that means, to be bothered by things that are happening to other people. And you can't begin to make a change until you care. Until you care, there's no change. And, and the world tells us just to be happy. Whatever you need to do you to take care of yourself, you do that. And I would say we've got to wake up to what's happening around us. Even to our own lives, but, but to others around us. To wake up. I, it's fascinating that I think Jesus, when, 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 when he talks to his disciples, he says, "The, the way the world is going to know if you're my disciples or not is what? If we love one another. It's not if we have our acts together, or if we're really smart, or that's not, that's not the defining factor of what it means to, to love Jesus. He says "Is if you show love to each other, and we're seeing that here in Nehemiah as a person who just cares. And he cares enough to ask, and then he cares enough to weep. He cares enough to weep. He lets some, uh, the situation of others affect him. He cares. And so then we could ask the question, well, then what? So then what? He cares. He, he weeps. He says, as soon as I heard these words, I sat, da- sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the prayer for the people of Israel, your servants. Nehemiah begins praying. He cares. He is moved. He starts fasting and he starts praying. He doesn't know the solution yet. He doesn't know how to fix that the situation that he's just heard. He doesn't even know if he's going to be able to or supposed to. He just knows he's got to start praying. So I'd ask you, what are you praying about? Who are you praying for? He cares enough to ask. He cares enough to weep. And he cares enough to start fasting and praying. Do you care enough about anything to fast? Do I? This, this should be convicting to us so far, just in these few verses. This should be convicting. It says that he is praying day and night. This really is caring about others, isn't it? Caring enough to fast, caring enough to pray day and night, and caring enough to start with prayer. I I know my first reaction to, to hearing about a problem often is to go, well, how can I fix it? Let me jump into action, here I go. That's our first gut response too often. Scripture tells us the starting place is prayer. Not just lip service, oh, let me pray about that. It's really praying about it, really caring about it, and committing to that. And so then he goes on. It says, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you, even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. As he begins to pray, he recognizes his own sin and the sins of his people. He recognizes there's a need for change. There's a need for change. Change that he has not been right before God, that his people have not been right before God. We we call this corporate confession. And we did it this morning and it's why we do it in, in, in church every Sunday. You might say, why do we do that? Why do we say all these words? We confess together because we need change, because we recognize that things aren't right, things aren't the way they're supposed to be. And so together as we worship, we confess to him what we have done wrong as a people. And, and Nehemiah is doing that here. He says, We're, Israel has, has not done what is right. And I have not done right. My father, my family, we haven't done what's right. And we say, well, that's obvious. We can always do that. It, it is a little bit obvious that to say we need to change means that there's an acknowledgment that things aren't the way they should be. There, there's something wrong here. And that includes our relationship with God, and and, and that's important. Nehemiah says, this is not a good situation. It needs to get fixed. We need to start with our relationship. I need to start by praying to you, confessing where I've been in the wrong in our relationship. And and to me, this is related to what we talked about last week where I said that that every issue is a spiritual issue. There there are no unspiritual, non-spiritual issues. Any bad habit you are dealing with, there's a spiritual issue that needs to be dealt with as well in it. And so any change that's needed in your life is related to loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving your neighbor as yourself. Pretty much anything that you've got going on, you could say there's something you're not doing well in that that's a part of it that needs to be changed. And so I'll call this the big fancy term that we use, repentance. Nehemiah cared enough to ask, he cared enough to weep, he cared enough to pray, and then he cared enough to repent, to change things with God, to say this needs to go better between us. And as he continues on in his prayer, which is the most of this chapter, we see this focus on repentance. He'll go on in verse 8, he says, remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. And then he's gonna claim here in verse nine, see where it gets real good. He says, but if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. And give success to your servant today and grant him mercy the side of this man. The basis of this prayer is to remind God of his promises. And that sounds strange. But he says, God, you've declared who you are and what you will do. I want you to do those things that you said you will do. It's us recognizing th- his prayer or his promises more than it is about us convincing and conniving and and forcing him into anything. It's us recognizing what he's already promised. God loves to make promises about who he is and what he's going to do. And he made a promise uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 30. And we read that just a few minutes ago. Deuteronomy 30. This is the, the promise that Nehemiah is, is, is leaning into in this prayer. He says, hey, you remember when you said that if your people would change their ways and come to you, that you would bring them back to your land and you would bless them again? God, would you do it? You said you would. It's time. Would you do that, please? God promises he will restore his people. He will restore the nation that returns to him. He would cleanse their hearts. He would hear their prayers. He would be the one who initiates change, and he would fix their situation. God would be the one who fixes And again, I'll go back to last week as we talked about that. Remember, no one is able to do what is good. Nehemiah understands that. God can do what is good. We can't. And Nehemiah can't. And so he says, God, there's good that needs to happen. You've got to be the one who does it. Help me. Help us in this. You and I don't possess any inner goodness to bring any good change in this world. Nehemiah knows that that's his prayer, that God would bring change that's needed. So Nehemiah's going to show some just incredible persistence and determination in this book as we go through it. You, you would just be amazed at, at how this guy just keeps going. But, but we have to keep in mind that all of that is grounded in the prayers that are started right here in this chapter in Nehemiah, in Nehemiah 1. He's going to pray multiple times. I think there's 12 recorded prayers of Nehemiah in 10 chapters. He's always praying. And he's going to acknowledge his inability to do anything good unless God steps in, that only God can fix this. And he says, God, you've made a promise, and I'm going to ask you to be, make good on that promise. You promised you would help us when we repent, when we recognize that we've gone astray. And you said that you would change the hearts of your people. Would you help us? Would you do that? This is the starting point for change. In a church, in a person, in a family, this is the same place. God, you promised you'll help us to do something different. And this is not a good situation. Only you can bring good in it. We've been in the wrong. Would you help us? Would you fix this? So in your life, in your family, in this church, We must be convinced that it all starts with focusing on a right relationship with God. It starts with prayer. It starts with our relationship with him. He is the God of comebacks, and they start when we return to him. Let's pray together. Father, if we're honest, we must all say in this room that there is change needed in our lives. There's change needed in our families, in our relationships in our jobs, in our everything. And if this church is honest, we need help too in change. And whatever it is you have for us in the future, we have to admit we need your help. Would you help all of us to care, to care enough to ask, to care enough to recognize the need, to recognize that there's a problem that there needs to be changed, and to go to you in prayer. Would you help us admit where we're wrong? Would you help us to seek your help in being different, knowing that you are the God of comebacks, knowing you can do all things. God, we come to you, recognize that in this time. In Jesus' name, amen.